This week on Dig Me Out. It unraveled quickly for me. The formula became pretty stale and it became pretty easy to pick holes in it. Tim and Jay review Return of the Rentals by The Rentals. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me once again, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, it's episode 189, season four, and we are inexplicably returning to the 90s, although that is the charter of this particular endeavor, and we are going to... Are we a spaceship? Yes, we are. Which What's is the appropriate of space endeavor uh, to explore the unknown, Jay? And in that sense, the, the most obscure corners of the galaxy. Correct. I don't know if this one qualifies as completely obscure <clears throat> um, or obscure. Is obscure obscure? obscure? Now that word is weird to me because I just mispronounced Lady's it. choice. Jay, the rentals. We're going to talk about their record. Return of the Rentals, which is actually a, uh, it's a, it's a mistruth because the rentals did not exist before this album. So there's nothing for them to return from. Uh, it's actually a lie, Jay. But nonetheless, we will investigate it. We're doing so because the rentals happen to have a new record coming out called Lost in Alphaville. Uh, it's their third official full length album. Their first was in 1995, so it makes sense that uh, 19 years later they would release their third record in a Obviously. Guns N' Roses esque uh, wait mm. for their release. Um, did Buckethead play on this? He did not, but there were some other interesting folks who did, Jay, uh, or at least on the new record. Well, on the new record, um, Pat Carney from the Black Keys plays on the new rentals record hmm. and on this record you have well we'll get into it i'm not going to spoil it but jay i was familiar with this band thanks to the single friends with p or, or, or friends of p friends of p not friends with p i want to make sure i get that correct and that was a bit of a single a bit of a hit not a huge hit but it was a you know it was a hit had some airplay got it on the mainstream radio and whatnot back in uh, 1995 when this album came out Were you a friend of P J back in 1995? Uh, I, I knew the band because there was some. Um, obviously, it made news when is it Matt Sharp? Is that his name? Right. Left the uh, Weezer to form. Ah, the band. I have to correct you there. He actually what? did this in parallel to Weezer. Okay. Well, when he eventually left, right. <laughs> that's 
when I was aware of it. And then, yeah, that song was, it had, it, it, it had its moment, um, mm-hmm. in time. I don't know. If, I guess, I guess it was kind of a hit on, on alternative radio. So I don't want to get into the details on it. It'll spoil my review, but yeah. Gotcha. Um, yeah, it, it, it came, this album came out in 95, the Weezer album Pinkerton, which was their second record, came out the year after. And he was actually, he played on that record and he was a part of the band uh, up until that record. So technically it was released in parallel, not, it was a side project because uh, Weezer drummer Patrick Wilson actually plays drums on this album. Along with um, some of the other people that appear are uh, uh, Petra Hayden from the band That Dog. She plays violin and sings. And her sister, Rachel Hayden, also sings on this record. Um, and then a guy named Tom Grimley is playing uh, Moog. And does some production work on the record. So this this Groove Shark is uh, really irritating me. <laughs> Maybe this can be our discussion for the day. <laughs> We needed a topic to discuss. I can t- we can, I can just rail on Groove Shark. Sorry, okay. I'm trying to I'm trying to re- refresh myself with the record, and it keeps like creating a cue, and I just want to listen to the goddamn song. When we go down to the <clears> queue, <throat> press the play button, and then it should play. I know, but then I'm hitting play twice. Let me let me Jay. Let me get us back on. Track you go here. into the history, and I'm gonna um troubleshoot. You, you troubleshoot. Let's talk some history of the rentals. History of the band. So, as I mentioned, the Rentals formed in 1995. Matt Sharp, who's the bassist and one of the founding members of Weezer, formed the band as a side project uh, in between records uh, from Weezer. And their debut album came out in October of 95 on Maverick Records, which was a subsidiary of Reprise Records. As I mentioned, Patrick Wilson from Weezer played, as along with Petra Hayden and some other folks on this record. Uh, when the Weezer record, when they were working on the Weezer record, obviously this took a back seat. Uh, Weezer, after the then failure of Pinkerton, uh, from a commercial standpoint, uh, Rivers Cuomo went into a depression and the band basically went on hiatus. So in 1997, uh, Matt Sharp reformed the rentals and started working on their second record. Uh, it took a while to put the record together, a couple years actually. Uh, Members of Blur, Ash, Elastica, and Lush all made guest appearances on the record, along with a future SNL uh, star and uh, television movie star, Maya Rudolph, um, sings on two of the songs. I believe sings. I think that's her musical talent. The album was released in April of 99, and shortly thereafter, Sharp disbanded the band again, and for six years... They, uh, the rentals did not exist. And then in October of 2005, he reformed the band to celebrate the 10 year anniversary of return of the rentals. And they started doing some shows with a new lineup in 2007. They released an EP called the last little life in 2009. They, uh, Matt Sharp announced a rentals project called songs about time, which is going to be a year long multimedia project. So it had, uh, a photograph a day. It had 52 short films for 52 weeks. And then it had three mini albums or EPs released in April, July, and October that were released as digital downloads. And then the whole thing was available as one gigantic box set when it was completed. 
Joey Santiago from the Pixies appears on one of the EPs and the album spawned uh, an additional or the project spawned an additional album called Resilience which was originally going to be part of the Songs About Time project but ended up becoming a a separate project um, which was originally going to be called Tokyo Blues that specific part of the project and then was renamed Resilience and it was written about a character basically suffering through the Japanese tsunami and earthquake that had taken place uh, at that during that time period. Um, and then in 2013, Dave Sardi was brought on board to help Sharp with the third official rentals album called, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Lost in Alphaville, which is released on August 26th of this year on polyvinyl records a number of guests appear and as i mentioned pat carney of the black keys plays on the record so that's the history of the rentals if you would like to suggest an album for us to review please visit our request review page at digmeoutpodcast.com jay we did get some facebook feedback on this record uh bo dure i think that's how he pronounced your last name bo uh said uh Maya Rudolph Petra Hayden and Weezer guys in one band beautiful always wish they had gotten the whole group back together on occasion and then Scott Russell Hallgram says always conflate these guys with the residents which is a different band so Jay let's talk some rentals we both were familiar with the single friends of P I was really not familiar with the whole record um, I was familiar with Matt Sharp, and I liked his contributions to Weezer. I always thought that he was sort of the, I guess, quirky side guy, bass player, the what, uh, the guy who contributed, um, you know, the, the awesome bass fuzz tone on the Pinkerton record, um, who did some of the weirder vocal things that happened on that record, some of the mm-hmm. falsetto counter melodies and stuff like that. I think his departure has definitely been felt. Um, I think if you analyze the first two records and compare them to the output since then, with it being, you know, wholly Rivers Cuomo's band since then, I think you see it. There's, I think there's a pretty stark difference in the band. Uh, I don't want to say that I don't want to compare him to like, you know, other songwriting tandems like, you know, Lennon and McCartney or, you know, Johnny Marr and, and Morrissey. But I think that they they definitely balanced each other in a pretty mm-hmm. positive way, um, mm-hmm. and I think that I uh, know I'll just sort of transition into the into the record here. I think that you hear a lot of that first and some of the second Weezer album uh, in this record. Do you agree? I do. I didn't. I, I knew he was an important part of the band, and there was something magic about the first two records that obviously hasn't been there since. Um, They've kind of turned into a a, van, a more vanilla version of of what they originally were, and um, I, that revisiting this record has has made it clear to me why that is. Um, I think he does bring a little bit of quirkiness. I think he brings the edge, like the authentic mm-hmm. kind of raw rawness and and edginess to the original two Weezer records that have it's just been completely uh, lost. Now it's it's a very one dimensional band. So I definitely uh, can see that, and I think it's that's one of the more enjoyable parts about this record was going uh, back, listening to it, and, and imagining um, or thinking about you know the, 
what he contributed to the original records and then also even thinking about what the newer stuff could have been like had he been involved yeah and why and why the hell he isn't involved (laughs) well that's a that's an interesting point of contention because i tried to figure that out and reading the quotes from the early 2000s he says that he didn't quit the band that basically the band went on hiatus and then when rivers cuomo brought it back he just didn't include him so i don't know if there was a falling out i mean those guys were i mean at one point matt sharp was suing rivers cuomo over like songwriting royalties and stuff like that so they've since made up and they've performed together but there was clearly some hostility which often happens with songwriting partnerships uh you know one member thinks that they need to you know step up and be the you know the, the lead i guess you'd say and and then the other one sort of you know, gets pushed to the side or, you know, in, in a lot of cases, it's the lead singer and a, a lead guitar player, not necessarily a lead singer, guitar player and a bass player who are sharing the spotlight. But maybe he maybe Rivers Cuomo felt like this. I need to can take control of this band. And that's why uh, he wasn't brought back. But uh, Matt Sharp made it pretty clear that he didn't quit the band. They just yeah. never called him back. Uh, there you have it. Yeah, that, that makes sense, actually. Right, it does. And it's it's if sad you know because it listening to this record, when you hear like a song like Waiting, track two, that totally sounds like a Weezer song. That could have been on the first record. that one also reminded me of um melodically it reminded me of frank black or the pixies a lot too he got Mm -hmm. rid of the synth stuff and he just listened to the vocal delivery it it revealed that that uh, influence quite a bit but yeah i agree there's a lot of stuff on here where you could i mean i guess i'll just roll into one one of the things i i don't like about it is that um not only can i hear i can hear the weezer potential in these songs but it also makes me miss the guitar. I went into this record really being excited about the concept of this band, which is sonically, it's very reliant on a fuzz bass and synth and drums. Mm -hmm. Uh, From what I can hear, there's very little guitar in this record, if any at all. Uh, Conceptually, I love that idea, Um, especially when you mix in the harmonies. um, You're getting a nice thick vocal. It's very reliant on solid vocal melodies, but you can do some things sonically um, by taking that guitar out and replacing it with other instruments um, unfortunately uh, there's a lot of moments where it leaves a hole um, and there's nothing for the vocal to stick to uh, it kind of floats out in space in an awkward way sometimes the bass part is more is is guitar-ish enough or the tone is guitar-ish enough that it can kind of latch onto that other times they use synth strings to fill that void and create that 
mm-hmm. melodic glue or counter melody and sometimes that works but i find some of the and i found some of the the synths the um the string stuff to be a bit odd how did you feel about that part of the the record well knowing that a, quite a bit of the string stuff is actually petra hayden playing violin um mm-hmm. that it's not necessarily i mean I, I, when it's a big bed of strings it's obviously a, a, a keyboard but i think a lot of them are a lot of those instances are are her pl- maybe playing along with it to add that dimension of a live string uh part mm-hmm. and then there are some parts where she's sort of playing on her own i liked I, I, like you, I like the conceit of the band that this is a big fuzzy bass tone combined with a lot of cool analog synths. It works for me 90% of the time. I think it where it fails is when they get away from the pure pop sugary goodness of Friends of P and Waiting and some of those songs and they try to do stuff that really doesn't lend itself well to you know the, the synth when you're just holding down a couple of keys on a synth. Um, it works well when you can change them quickly, but when you're dragging mm-hmm. them out on a slow song or a mid-tempo song, sometimes it really opens up like these big holes that you're talking about where the vocals just kind of like laying there with nothing mm-hmm. to latch onto. And yeah, if, if there had been some guitar, I really don't think there's any guitar to speak of, um, of any significance on the record. If there had been just a few choice spots where they had brought that in, I think it would have made a huge difference. I really think an acoustic guitar would have been really interesting mm. um, in a lot of this, on, on, not a lot, but on a, on a number of these songs, um, because it's such a sterile sound with the synth mm-hmm. and that bass. To bring in an acoustic guitar would have really brightened things up. Um, on just a few songs, it just didn't work for me. Yeah, I noticed... Um... So something like Brilliant Boy is a song that doesn't work for me at all. Once it's, it's weird, it's too complicated for this format. Um, and I think it's one of the songs where the bass part is a, it's a bass part that you would write if you were relying on a guitar. Um, so it's very um, locked in with the drums. It's, it has more space in it. kind of doesn't get filled and it just it, it makes it sound like this at times the singer's not even the vocal part isn't even related to the rest of the music it just doesn't have that one element in the middle to tie the two pieces together um so that i can understand it it's like uh sounds like it's literally like somebody mixed something out of it um, which is like i said I, you know kind of unfortunate because it does work at, at other times and i like the concept um i just think there's like one instrument 
missing or mis misapplied here. And uh, I'm not quite sure what it is. I don't know if it's the string element that could be another instrument or um, sometimes that really, that leady kind of synth becomes mm -hmm. a little overbearing, you know, becomes kind of shrill. And the I, car I synth? Like, yeah, like I'll, I kind of wish maybe like if you were going to bring guitar, maybe you could do it in that way. So it's more of like a leady kind of guitar and not like chords because the bass covers, the bass and the synth, it does a good job sonically of covering ground so i mean the record sounds big it's not like it sounds thin or anything it's just melodically it's missing something to really um sweeten those those melodies up or make them relate to the rhythm more i think part of that is that i think they do an excellent job you know we've read about this before of, of having that female vocal utilized quite a bit um i would have liked to have heard it used as a counter to his vocal at more i think that would have been interesting you know it would have been nice to hear them play off of each other instead of just duplicating each other for the entire mm -hmm. record um that's that's an opportunity i think that was that was kind of missed there's a few there's a few tiny spots where they they utilize the break them off from each other but it's not in a significant way that i was hoping for it's interesting to me that there's i didn't realize there was two different female uh singers on this so there are times when it it sounds better than others. Like um, the track Naive stands mm -hmm. out to me as one where the vocal is not quite right. Like, I don't know, it sounds a little off to me and not quite as good. singer or if it's a matter of just the part but it's just i don't know it's just not quite working for me um earlier talking about the, co the chorus specifically because um, it sounds like it almost sounds like she's off key a little bit yeah yeah i don't know if that's intentional or not but the harmony doesn't sound as good either um, right the, the, even the lead vocal it, it it has its good moments and moments where it's not quite as strong too so the style that he sings in i don't, I don't know these you know obviously not the world's greatest singer so he's kind of he's very uh, reliant on a particular kind of delivery and mm -hmm. then uh, a way to layer it to make it sound and obviously the strength of the melody is is a big part of it um but there's some i think there's some songs on here where the vocal is more successful than others and that's either just uh it's one of two things it's either you know limitations of his voice or it's just not being helped by the rest of the music um it's kind of being left out there on its own and exposed a bit more than maybe it needs to be um if you think about something like the sonically um the approach of, of weezer you know that that does a lot to uh distract you cover up make up for um any kind of lack of uh, vocal performance mm -hmm. um it becomes very secondary um, because it's all it all melts together so well that you don't really care. 
Whereas this one, I think it exposes it more and puts more focus on it. Um, I found myself being more critical of the vocals on this record than I would ever be on a Weezer record, which was interesting. Yeah, there's definitely a it's 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 a one trick pony in terms of the vocal. He might change up the cadence, but he's pretty much in the same range throughout the entire record. Mm-hmm. Um, which I get. I mean, this is a throwback new wave record. They're not trying to do a lot of different stuff. They're just trying to make a new wave pop record, essentially, with some modern fuzz bass tone. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's essentially what I'm pulling away from this, you know, or getting from this record. So I don't really need it to be, you know, all that crazy. I think this album works best when it's in the two to three minute range in terms of the songs, um, when they start to go over that is really the, the three spots that bother me are move on brilliant boy and sweet and tenderness because mm. they're all over four minutes. And I think that this band does not need to even get to that length of time. I think the, I think three thirty is like the optimal time for this band. And if they can stay under three thirty, great. Because this is a band that should yeah. be following the pop format, doing you know harmonies with the male female vocal, and keeping it simple. Um, when they tried to do like you said, try to do something a bit more experimental on like Brilliant Boy, it just doesn't quite work as well as it works on the first three songs in this record. Are just great killer little pop songs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can I can excuse the detour with Move On because they come back strong. I think on. Please let that be you and and my summer girl. But uh, yeah, there's just there's just a little bit uh, there's a little bit too much um, reliance on some slower stuff on the back half of the record, and that's uh, that's not this band's forte. I even felt melodically, while it was strong, it it, it missed a hook sometimes, and, and they were there. They just um, they didn't repeat the right parts enough. <laughs> um, there was there was a couple songs. Um, Please let that be you was one example where they just got a little. It's overly complicated in the in the melody, um, and there's some parts in there where if you just grabbed onto those and just repeated those, you'd have a much I think hookier song. I felt that way about too and uh just it needed another level potentially another level of uh refinement there or, or production guidance uh producing uh to to hone in and really make that work because that's what this record needs to be about you know it needs to be about really simple well thought out uh melodies and hooks 
and then basically the minimum instrumentation you need to make that work, you know? There's times when it works, and there's other times where it's uh, not quite right yet. Drums are great on the record. I love, uh, what's his name? Pat something? Pat Wilson. Yeah. His, his, uh, his drum sound, you know, it's you can tell it's him. Um, the way he plays, everything. Really, really enjoy the drumming on this record quite a bit. And it definitely created creates a pretty solid tie between the other early Weezer records um, and this between not only the, the familiar style of uh, uh, intense melody, but the uh, the drumming and the drum sound itself, too, is very reminiscent. Well, the thing that's so great about Pat Wilson is that he's a incredibly solid drummer that he never does anything that's like wildly overcomplicated, but he always plays something just interesting enough that it's not totally predictable. Like he just kind of always adds something, but he's keeping it simple so that it's a pop song, but still able to add just little flourishes here and there. Um, whether it's the way he does a, you know, a fill or something, adding something to the beat, just a little something special, but he's always keeping it like rock solid pop rock territory. Um, and that's, I mean, that's been, he's been like sort of the, you know, continuing, force in Weezer that's able to keep that band um, grounded in a lot of ways. Yeah, the uh, the drums in My Summer Girl are a great example. Uh, it's a really cool pattern uh, and, and really sets the the mood and vibe of that song. And like you said, it has enough. We listen to the kick drum of that song. It just has enough going on to be interesting, but not get in the way. So I was going to say, that's got that like jagged sort of like off kilter beat, but it's still... Like you can still nod your head to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a he's a he's a head nodder. Yeah. In terms of the like uh, all of his his rhythms sort of it really has that vibe to it, and he's he's got a feel and a style, which is a you know that's hard for drummers. So uh, there's not a lot of drummers that have that, um, especially if you think about um, '90s bands. You know, there's probably maybe a handful where you can say that they have a a genuine, unique style to the to them, and you can pick them out. You know, just based on a little song sample and tell it's them. Um, I think he fits in that category. Were you gonna ask uh, if he played on the uh, the next record? Because he doesn't. Yeah, does he? Yeah, kind of. That's no. my figure. Different drummer. Yeah. Any parting sh- parting thoughts before we head over to uh, review or our final review land? I just in general, you know, thinking about this record and getting into it, my hopes were high. I thought based on the format and the um, sort of the concept around it, I thought I would like it quite a bit. And, you know, three songs or so in, I did. It unraveled quickly for me. The formula became pretty stale and uh, it became pretty easy to pick holes in it the more I got through this, the more I got into this record. So... I guess that's my my lasting impression. It, it just made me think uh, to kind of come full circle to the original point about Weezer is, you know, neither of these two are as good as when they're together. Right. <laughs> you know, they both have this, their own little take on the same idea. And when you bring it together, it becomes this well-rounded, um, fun, but interesting 
can take on a serious tone as well. You know, this just a nice mix of a lot of different things when you put these two guys together. When you take them apart, it becomes pretty one-dimensional. So, yeah, that's that's what I mostly thought about as I reviewed this record. The thing that was going through my mind was what a weird time for the... I mean, I guess not, but kind of a weird record for 1995. Weren't a lot of synth-pop bands in 1995. You know, this is the nexus of smashing pumpkins releasing melancholy they hadn't gotten to a door yet you know this is oasis releasing what's the story morning glory you know we're the foo fighters putting out their first record in 95 you get like the first filter record the goo goo dolls a boy named goo i mean we were still in guitar rock not grunge but guitar band territory you know, Sponge putting out their first record, Toadies, Our Lady Peace, all those debut records, Space Hog, a lot of a lot of guitar bands still existing. So it's it's sort of a, not amazing, but you know the fact that this weird synth pop song Friends of P got on the radio, um, I think is a testament to the fact that Matt Sharp's a pretty good songwriter because that's a catchy song, which is supposedly about Paulina Poroskova because Rick Ocasek worked on the first. He's her album, and he's married to her. And supposedly, she said, you know, they they have songs written about girls, and she was in the studio or something with Rick and said something about, or or had met the band at some point and said, nobody's ever written a song about me. So Matt Sharp wrote Friends of P about Paulina. That's That's the story. That's the legend of where that song comes from. Nice. So let's go to the scale, Jay. Uh, where the album better EP decent single? Where do you land? I'm in an EP. I think I sort of summed that up in my final statement there. It's it starts off strong and promising, but uh, becomes Swiss cheese halfway through. Um, and I find a lot of the rest of the record kind of unnecessary. I <laughs> had the the point of the band is best uh, best made with the first. Uh, three songs and then you could probably choose you know another two from the middle of the record and that would be plenty uh in terms of in terms of where they are in this this part of their development uh maybe they explore some more ground on later records and expand things um but uh in terms of where they are in this record i think you get by with five i'm gonna one-up you i'm gonna go with six songs still an ep but i I think there's six solid tracks uh, on this record not that the other ones are terrible and i can't listen to them i just don't think that they work in this format for this band uh they need they either need to be edited down a little bit or or altered in some way like i mentioned i would have liked to have heard you know a little acoustic guitar thrown in there but you know if you're gonna stick to your guns and making a, a solely synth bass record then that's what you're doing who might argue so that's it for uh the rentals and uh, Return to the Rentals, their debut record from 1995. Jay, did you need 30 seconds to rant about Groove Shark, or did you want to talk about something else? <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, to play a song on Groove Shark, you, play the, you hit play, and it adds the song that you play to a cue, and it starts playing the song. If you want to change to another song, you hit play on the next song, and instead of playing it, it adds it to the queue. Correct. 
So then I have to go down to the queue and hit play again if I actually want to listen to that song. That's insane. Um, I figured out that if you go to the, there's a drop down menu. If you want to play a song, you can click play now. But as an interface designer, if you show me a play button and it operates as a play button the first time I click it, it should operate as a play button the second time I click it as well. (laughs) And I'll just leave you with that. And that's Jay's take on Groove Shark. (laughs) If you like what you heard, feel free to leave us some positive feedback over at iTunes. And as always, you can hit up our request review page at digmeoutpodcast.com and request an album for us to review. want to thank everybody for checking in with us, whether it's on Radio IO or Stitcher or however you listen. We appreciate it. And that's it. Uh, we've got, uh, so I mentioned that you know this band has an album out. Next week, we're going to be reviewing a band that also has a release out. They're called Self. They have an EP out right now. It's, I think it's been out for a little bit. But they're a band that a, a couple people suggested we check out a few years ago, and I never got around to adding them. And then they just performed on Jimmy Kimmel. So I was like, hey, wait a minute. This band's from the 90s. And I went and... Did some research and said, oh, they have a new EP out. Let's go check out their first record. So we're going to be doing uh, a self record uh, coming up next week. So number of bands that we're going to be reviewing uh, in the coming weeks have new releases out. So it's going to be an opportunity to hit some new, uh, hit some old stuff and uh, with bands or artists who have new stuff out, which would be cool to talk about. So uh, for Jay, I'm Tim. That's it. We're done. We're out. We'll be back next week with another episode. Dig me out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. 